If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. listening to BBC History Magazine's weekly podcast. I'm Dave Musgrove, the editor of the magazine, and this is the 3rd of our September 2011 editions. BBC History Magazine is on sale in all good news agents and by subscription. Visit historyextra.com for more information. We've just got the one interview this week, but it's a good one. I've been talking to York University's Dr John Cooper, author of the new book The Queen's Agent, Francis Walsingham at the Court of Elizabeth I. He's also written the cover feature of the October issue of BBC History magazine, where he explores how Sir Francis Walsingham went about keeping the Tudor Queen safe from harm in the 16th century. Elizabeth was a Protestant queen in the charged atmosphere following the Reformation, and she faced threats particularly from Catholic agents who wanted a return to the Catholic way of worship. I caught up with John Cooper to find out more about Walsingham's methods. We're talking Francis Walsingham. And uh, in your book, one of the points you're making is that he was uh, responsible for Queen Elizabeth I's security. That's right. So the question is, why did Elizabeth I need someone to protect her? Well, actually, this is more of a controversial question than it might appear, because there is a line of thought uh, asking whether, in fact, she did need somebody to protect her, um, as much as people like me claim. Was Elizabeth ever genuinely in danger? Um, and this is, a, this is an interesting argument. I mean, I think it's politically useful in her reign to some of her councillors to kind of whip up the sense that Elizabeth is in danger, that she is facing plots, because a lot of her councillors have quite an anti-Catholic agenda. And so the state in danger is a useful piece of political rhetoric mm. um, to chuck around. And so there is this interesting question as to what the, the true nature of these plots um, is and whether perhaps some of them have been imagined or fabricated or at least blown out of proportion, embellished. I mean, I've reviewed a lot of the evidence and I think that whereas some plots do fall into that category, and we can perhaps talk about those in a little bit, I think Elizabeth genuinely was in danger, actually, and essentially um, for two reasons. Um, partly it comes down to the Elizabethan religious settlement of 1559. I mean, Elizabeth recreates a relatively broad Church of England um, when she comes to the throne and enacts this, this religious settlement through, through Parliament. Um, but it's, it's broad, but it's not broad enough to take in quite a significant section of the population who might have some lingering sense of allegiance to the papacy um, or who simply want to worship um, in an old-fashioned way. I mean, worship uh, essentially according to the, the rite of, of the Mass, the Catholic Mass. And Elizabeth, in a way, she does create a broad church, but she's also, to some extent, sort of quite an anti-Catholic personally, particularly when it comes to the Mass, and she will not have that celebrated on her soil. So that pushes a number of people sort of beyond the Church of England, um, and that creates, ultimately, a threat against her. Um, but another element of this threat is simply the fact that she didn't marry. She doesn't marry, she doesn't produce an heir. Um, and so she faces, in a sense, the same problem faced by her older half-sister, Mary, that until, until there's an heir to carry forward um, the religious settlement, that religious settlement isn't secure. And so Elizabeth is aware that 
Mary Queen of Scots is sort of is sort of waiting in the wings. But that threat that Walsingham is dealing with is coming from a number of different directions, and this is what Walsingham is having to deal with. Um, he's having to simultaneously juggle um, a threat from ab- abroad, from powerful elements in Europe. So the Duke of Guise in France, for instance, Philip II, uh, behind them, the papacy, are all to some extent interested in reclaiming England for Catholicism. I think that interest waxes and wanes, it's particularly at its height in the 1580s. Um, but that intersects with another of, number of other elements. Um, so there are a number of English Roman Catholic exiles who've escaped England when Elizabeth comes to the throne. A lot of them have ended up in Paris. We're talking about a relatively small number of people, just three or 400 people, but they're politically quite well connected. Um, they've got revenues um, and they are actively working for an invasion, a Catholic invasion of England to restore um, the Catholic faith and probably, it has to be said, to depose Elizabeth, possibly even, even kill her. Um, and then there's the actual domestic element of all of this. Um, I think it's fair to say that the great majority of Elizabethan Catholics are loyal to the Queen. They don't want to dabble in the politics of assassination, um, partly because uh, they think it's wrong, but also because it would expose them to very considerable danger. Um, but within that sort of broad, broadly conformist group, there are some genuinely radical families and they tend to uh, take the form of sort of angry young men, men like Francis Throckmorton and Anthony Babington, who've got connections with the Queen of Scots. They've, they've sort of picked up Catholicism um, when they've been at university or possibly the inns of court or they've possibly inherited it. I, wanted, I mean, one or two of these people are actually Roman Catholic converts, which is interesting. And they actually speak a much more radical political language than the older generation. They're, they're picking up sort of very radical political ideas coming in from the continent about assassination and tyrannicide. Um, and so I think those plots, the Throckmorton plot and the Babington plot, are genuine plots. I think Elizabeth is, is very genuinely in danger from those, and particularly um, Francis Throckmorton's plot, actually. And so when Walsingham uncovers that in 1583, that's a real coup um, for his security services. Okay, well, I think we'd better backtrack a bit because you talked about Catholicism and Elizabeth's uh, religious settlement. Um, for anyone who's not familiar with that, I think we'd better try and try and focus in on that for a second. So Elizabeth came to the throne in 1558 following her half-sister Mary, and Mary had brought back Catholicism after uh, the, the, the start of the Protestant Reformation under Henry VIII and Edward VI, who preceded her, but then Elizabeth changed it all back. Uh, when she came to the throne. Is that, is that a fair summation? Yeah, that's a fair summation. I mean, of course, Elizabeth inherits a very mixed um, religious setup. I mean, so there has been a very radical Protestant Reformation um, during the reign of her half-brother, Edward. But then that's followed by um, a restoration of Catholicism um, under Mary. Now, historians are quite contested about whether to use that word restoration or not, because to some extent, Mary is not simply restoring something that had gone before, she's reforming it in the process. Um, so there's, there's a, a number of historians arguing at the moment that Marian Catholicism was actually forward-looking rather than backward-looking. But of course, the other side of this is that anybody who dissents from that line um, under Mary, um, who carries on um, preaching the Protestant gospel, um, is in considerable danger. Um, Protestants are faced with a very 
um, bleak set of choices, I think, um, under Mary. Um, so most of them conform, it has to be said. Uh, a number of them go underground. They, they move into sort of secret, um, uh, you know, prayer or Bible um, reading groups. Um, uh, a handful uh, are much braver than that, and they carry on speaking out publicly about the, uh, uh, what they see as the, the tyranny of Mary's reign and the, um, the idolatry, the abomination of Rome. And they're pretty rapidly picked up by the authorities and flung into prison. And of course, uh, a number of them are very brutally executed. They're, they're burned at the stake, um, nearly 300, in fact. Um, so that's the sort of situation that Elizabeth inherits in 1558. And I think public order is her number one priority. She wants to try and create a church that will uh, institute uh, some kind of order, some kind of conformity, um, and bring the entire nation behind one form of prayer. And that is what the common in the Book of Common Prayer really means. She wants to, to reunite the country, I think. And of course, we know in the long run that she's phenomenally successful in that, that the Elizabethan church settlement more or less survives the reign. It's then inherited by the early Stuarts. It, of course, disappears during the, the Civil War, the inter, interregnum uh, Commonwealth period, but it's largely um, reinstituted in 1662. Um, and the Book of Common Prayer, you know, remains um, the historic formulary of the faith of the Church of England to this day. So at one level, that's a very successful religious settlement. But it does leave a number of groups um, isolated um, and increasingly angry. At least that's the situation until the mid-1570s, and then something very interesting starts to happen. That um, generation um, of young priests who have been trained or have begun their training in Queen Mary's reign, um, and a number of other young priests who'd sort of started um, th their training uh, on the continent in the 1560s and early 1570s, they start coming back to England as missionary Catholic priests. So there's a new sort of threat. They've been on the continent. To the Church of England. Yes, they have. Um, and uh, by about the, the, the mid-1570s, there are a number of, particularly Oxford colleges, actually, that are just hemorrhaging um, young students. Um, they're just going straight over to, to Reims or to, to Dowie or to Rome to be, um, to be educated. The majority of them as, as seminary priests, um, a scattering of them as Jesuits as well. Um, and by the later 1570s, um, these people are coming back, not in huge numbers, it has to be said, um, uh, initially in sort of uh, groups of two or three. Um, but by the end of Elizabeth's reign, you're talking about um, the low hundreds of Catholic priests and Jesuits who have come back into England. And the frightening thing about these people um, from the perspective of the Elizabethan authorities is they're not foreign, they're English. Yeah. They speak the right accent. They've got a cup glass uh, English accent and they're educated at the right places at, at Oxford and Cambridge or the Inns of Court. So they understand English society. And then they go on the road and a number of them, um, you know, are prepared to, to wear disguises and they, they take alibis um, and they, they, they're working secretly. You know, they, they take disguises as, as gardeners or as uh, and great country estates or as um, stewards um, of um, gentry lands. Um, and they're a very, uh, a very a great source of worry for the, um, for the Elizabethan authorities. And so this is actually what Francis Walsingham and the... Um, Elizabethan Secret Service is trying to do um, in the 1570s and 1580s is to find out where these people are and then deal with them. 
So let's let's take it back to uh, to Walsingham then. So um, he's the man in charge of, uh, of of this Elizabethan Secret Service. So who was he, and how did he come to be in that position? Well, um, Francis Walsingham um, is a well-educated um, young man um, who goes to the University of Cambridge in Edward VI's reign, and then goes on to get some legal training um, at Gray's Inn. Um, one of the inns of court. Um, nothing terribly unusual about that. I mean, he comes from a family um, of, of Kentish gentry. Um, he's got good connections with the court. So his uncle um, had been Sir Anthony Denny, who was the nearest thing that Henry VIII had to a friend, I think, um, towards the end of Henry VIII's life. Denny um, is groom of the stool to Henry VIII and is in charge of Henry VIII's privy chamber. Um, so Walsingham doesn't come from nowhere. Um, and he goes into exile in Queen Mary's reign, very unusually, actually, for the Elizabethan political class. Not many other people who um, subsequently rise within the Elizabethan political establishment go into exile in Mary's reign. A lot of churchmen do, um, but sort of politicians, people like William Cecil, Lord Burley, certainly does not go into exile during Mary's reign. But Walsingham does. Um, he goes off to Switzerland, to Basel. He also spends some time in Italy which suggests that even then he's a radical Protestant. I mean, he's somebody whose faith is really leading him um, where, where he goes. But then there's a kind of frustrating lost period of Walsingham's life. What happens in the early years of Elizabeth's reign? We really don't know um, whether he just quietly goes back to his estates and, and lives as a sort of young country gentleman or whether he's carving out some sort of a political career that we know nothing about. He, he emerges rather suddenly in 1568. And at that point, he's already working as some sort of a political agent um, for William Cecil, who is um, Elizabeth I's uh, chief advisor, um, subsequently goes on to become Lord Burley, um, and of course, he's the most important of Elizabeth's um, statesmen for, the, for more or less the whole of her reign, something that Walsingham will have to work very closely with from then on. Um, and Walsingham is involved in this uh, sort of intelligence work. He, he reports on a very bizarre plot um, called the Ridolfi plot, which historians still haven't really got to the bottom of, focusing on a, um, a Florentine banker called Roberto di Ridolfi. And we still work, can't work out, or at least I can't work out entirely, who Ridolfi was working for, whether he is working for the Pope um, to restore Catholicism in England, or whether he only says he's working for the Pope and he's actually working for Lord Burley and Francis Walsingham. But what is clear is that um, Walsingham actually interrogates Rodolfi in his own house. Um, and that seems to be a kind of passport for Walsingham into the world um, of the Secret Service um, and gets him noticed at court. And at that point, um, Cecil recommends him for higher office and he gets made um, ambassador to France. Um, so he, goes, he spends um, a couple of years in Paris um, as Elizabeth's ambassador to the French court. It's while he's there that he, he witnesses the St. Bartholomew's Day massacre of Protestants, which I think, now we're already talking about a man who is a very advanced Protestant, but I think a St. Bartholomew's Day massacre really wounds Walsingham and sort of confirms in him a sort of Protestant worldview um, that Catholicism is, is a danger um, to the, the future existence of true religion. Um, that it's not only offensive, it's actually a form of tyranny and it's going to snuff out the true religion. When Walsingham comes back from his stint as ambassador, he becomes principal secretary to the Queen. And what does that mean? 
Well, it means literally that he is he is her secretary, so he receives um, all of the correspondence coming in to Elizabeth, and he is responsible for the correspondence going out from Elizabeth, which makes him sound like a humble functionary. But of course, it means he controls basically what Elizabeth reads um, and which. Um, which sort of diplomatic uh, exchanges um, she gets to learn about first. Um, and when he presents this material to the Queen, he puts a spin on it. And he's also sort of responsible for, um, to some extent, for Elizabeth's voice to her ambassadors and to other members of government. Um, and it also denotes a role in Parliament as well. The Privy Council, um, and Walsingham is a Privy Councillor as well as being Principal Secretary. Uh, the Pri Privy Council is, is Elizabeth's principal voice in the House of Commons. Um, and so it, it involves a number of things. It involves day-to-day -day contact with the Queen. It involves um, hammering out policy uh, on the Privy Council. And it also involves kind of manipulating um, the House of Commons to, um, to accept the government line. So that's really what he's doing in the 1570s. Much of the time he's, he's involved in policy. He's involved in a great deal of foreign policy um, uh, manoeuvring. He's very much concerned um, with the issue of the Queen's marriage um, with suitors, particularly French suitors. And Walsingham speaks fluent French and has, um, as I've mentioned earlier, a lot of French experience. And in his own way, he's actually quite pro-French, even though he's sort of anti-Catholic. Um, so he, he's the man who's dealing much of the time with Elizabeth's sort of on-off relationship First of all, um, with the Duke of Anjou, um, and then um, with Anjou's younger brother, the Duke of Alençon, who confusingly is then later known as the Duke of Anjou. Um, but uh, so Walsingham is, is, is dealing with that. And one of the interesting things um, I've been trying to do in this book is actually sort of sort out, at least in my own head, what Francis Walsingham thinks about the Queen getting married, whether he does want her to get married um, or doesn't want her to get married. Um, but then by the early 1580s, the international situation is becoming a lot more dangerous. Philip II is, I think, starting to get serious about restoring Catholicism in England. He's starting to assemble um, a naval force that would be capable of launching an armada against England. Philip II um, notoriously um, makes uh, a, a series of agreements with other Catholic powers, particularly the Guise family um, in France, uh, that mean that you could get a kind of, uh, sort of a Catholic international um, force um, uh, potentially mustering against England with a blessing from the Pope. Um, and so by the early 1580s, Walsingham is really forced to deal with that. And so it's that, that period of the sort of around about 1582 to 1587 where the majority of his work as a, as a spy master, um, you know, identifying these plots, infiltrating them, breaking them, and then ultimately, of course, famously seeing Mary Queen of Scots through to execution in 1587. That's, if we're looking for Walsingham, the spy master, um, that's the period that we're looking at the 1580s. Previously, his career has been, uh, has taken a rather different form. It's been much more sort of Walsingham, the ambassador, Walsingham, the politician, and Walsingham, the sort of Protestant. Hmm. And that was sort of the apogee of his secret service career, you were saying, in 1587. Um, what was, so what was he doing before that? What were these dark arts that you referred to? What sort of techniques was he employing to keep Elizabeth safe? Well, I think, um, uh, as I say in the, in the 
BBC History magazine article, I mean, I think one of the, the things that has surprised me most about Francis Walsingham is, is not his ability um, to recruit agents who are willing to work for him for money. I don't think that's particularly surprising. Um, what does surprise me is the way that he's able to turn or recruit agents who are actually Catholic themselves to recruit people from deep within the Catholic community, including several Catholic priests. Now, you wonder, um, you know, what these people thought they were doing, whether they have genuinely converted to Protestantism um, and they maintain their cover as Catholic priests while secretly having converted to Protestantism. In a couple of cases, these men are, are rewarded with Church of England living, so I suppose that's possible. It's possible that they're, they're just trying to save their own skin. They're afraid of being executed. They're afraid of being tortured. Um, you know, it's not everybody who is willing to stand up and be a martyr. Um, a lot of Catholic priests in Elizabeth's reign were incredibly brave and were willing to be martyred. There is a small number who are not willing to be martyred and are turned by Walsingham um, and then inform on other Catholic priests and inf inform on those congregations. And that is a very, very nasty story. Um, I mean, other things that Walsingham is doing, he's experimenting with secret ink. We know about that because one of his agents, who's obviously got a degree of, um, of competence in chemistry, um, it sends him recipes for, for secret ink. Um, he's um, also, he's, a, he's very, very uh, fluent in languages, Walsingham, and he recognises other people who are so. Um, and one of the more famous of his agents because of his role in the Babington plot is somebody called Thomas Phillips, um, and Thomas Phillips is obviously um, very mathematically gifted and very linguistically gifted. Um, uh, and he has some claim, I think, to be um, the first English cryptanalyst. Um, so in other words, he's somebody who develops um, I, an idea that's already there, but hasn't really been practiced in England, of frequency analysis to break secret codes or rather ciphers. So um, the sort of um, uh, letters that Anthony Babington and Mary Queen of Scots were sending back and forth, they're sort of double encrypted in a sense. I mean, they're, they're both um, in code and enciphered, and it's very difficult to break that um, until you develop a system of sort of frequency analysis, which, um, which sort of works on the frequency with, with, within which uh, certain letters appear in the English alphabet. So obviously A and E uh, appear very frequently and, and S's and T's rather less frequently and um, Z's and X's uh, very infrequently. And so through a process of trial and error, you can gradually, um, uh, looking at a document, you can actually sort of um, decipher it even if you haven't got the key. Um, in fact, that's not how the cipher, um, the ciphered correspondence of Mary Queen of Scots and Anthony Babington is ultimately broken um, because um, Thomas Phillips actually acquires a copy of the key itself. So it's simplicity itself for him just to um, just to look at the key and, and see what Liz, uh, what, what uh, Mary Queen of Scots was was writing to uh, to Babington and vice versa. Okay, last question, perhaps a, a slightly silly one, but. Um uh, the, sort of the frequency analysis thing that you just mentioned there, it sounds like something that the World War II codebreakers at Bletchley Park might have been doing. So is there anything that modern-day spies and protection agents could learn from Walsingham and his methods? It's a very interesting question, that. Um, uh, to be honest, 
I have resisted the temptation in writing this book to make what to some people might be the obvious connections between the 16th century and the modern day. So I've resisted the temptation to cast sort of 16th century Catholic radicals as modern day terrorists. Um, it's interesting when I go around and give public lectures on that, that's often something that, that people come and talk to me afterwards about. They say, well, isn't this, doesn't this all sound very modern? Um, aren't aren't these, um, these people in, involved in, in assassination plots and so on very much like modern terrorists? I mean, I think actually the issues there are quite different. I think the ideologies are different. Um, what I think modern security services would have to learn from Francis Walsingham and his methods is the value of infiltration, I think, and, and turning people. I think that the you really can't beat intelligence from the inside. And it's fascinating to see how these plots of the 1580s were just cracked wide open um, by people who, to the plotters, were plausible. Um, they were Catholic priests. Um, who were actually reporting on, on what they heard in confession in some cases. And it's difficult to see how those plots would have been traced and would have been broken without those sort of moles or people working from the inside. So I think that's what, and that of course is the technique of the, of the modern security services. I mean, uh, there have been several um, you know, recent examples following the sort of 7-7 um, bombings um, of the security services attempting to do just that, to, to place people um, within terrorist cells, um, often in deep cover for a long period of time, um, and to report. Of course, it's an incredibly dangerous thing to do, as one or two of, uh, of Walsingham's own agents um, found to their cost. I mean, at least one of Walsingham's agents in the English college, um, the English Catholic college in Reims, is actually found out. He's discovered as a spy, and he's imprisoned, and he's very badly tortured, actually, before being released. So it, it was a dangerous game even then. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger, talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash history extra. 
That was John Cooper of York University. You can read his piece on Francis Walsingham in the October issue of BBC History magazine. And his book, The Queen's Agent, Francis Walsingham at the Court of Elizabeth I, is published now by Faber and Faber. Do you get in touch if you've got anything you want to tell us about the podcast, particularly if you've got any ideas about how we can make it better? Email us at podcast.historyextra.com or get in touch by Twitter, twitter.com slash historyextra or Facebook, facebook.com slash historyextra. Next week, we'll be talking about the East India Company and hearing about Admiral Nelson. Don't miss it. I implore you. <laughs>